Travels with John Smith, Chapter 34, Summer 2015, The Long Way Home, Part 3, Iceland, Newfoundland, and Saskatchewan. It's midnight, and we have just landed in Iceland, and we're waiting for the bus to take us to the hotel. It is light outside, kind of like dusk, when it's not night and not full-on day. The air is crisp and cold, and there's a strong wind, so I'm happy I carried a small down jacket in my carry-on suitcase across Europe, as I need the extra layer. Outside the airport, it looks like the Saskatoon airport. We asked the bus driver who is to take us into Reykjavik what the population is in Iceland, and he says 250,000, which is close to what the population is in the city of Saskatoon, but this is a whole country. As we drive the long way into town, we see a barren landscape that looks somewhat like the surface of the moon with some moss growing on it. There are large pipes running alongside the roads. We finally get to the hotel, and it's small but equal in price to a five-star hotel in China. It is clean and simple, with a small kitchenette at the foot of the bed, which we will probably not use. There are two pink duvets on the bed and curtains at the head of the bed that we will pull to keep the light out as we are shattered. The shower has hot water and smells of sulfur. The shower toilet is smaller than the one we first had in China in our first apartment. We wake up to bright sunshine and hunger. We walk to a bakery a few blocks away, and it seems like a small North American town until we see what's in the bakery. There are croissants and chocolate made right there, and it feels more European now. We sit at one of the two outside tables, and people drive up and leave with coffees and goods from the patisserie. After walking for a bit, we discover a mall, and after discovering the prices in it are fairly high, I find a backpack that is half price and buy it. It seems like the sort of country where a backpack would be useful, and besides, the small carry-on I have is busting at the seams after Turkey, Madrid, and London, and we still have Newfoundland to visit before we can leave some things behind in Saskatchewan. John says it is the cream of all backpacks and has a lifetime guarantee. He says other people will be looking at my backpack with envy. This is a new world to me as I have never invested in a good backpack, so I'm pleased to now be one of the backpack gang. We find a, a shuttle bus just outside the mall that says it goes to the downtown port of Reykjavik and it's free. It makes several trips a day, which is good, as we don't really know where we are and haven't taken a card from the hotel, but we're sure we can find the way back from the mall. We arrive in the port downtown area in front of the Center of the Arts, Theater Music Creative. It is called Harpa and looks like it is entirely made of glass on all sides, some that look like the scales of a fish reflecting different colors and others just normal glass. 
The building began to be built when Iceland was financially quite well off and was meant to be covered all over with colored panes. But Iceland's financial slump happened while it was being built. The whole country went bust, and they ran out of money, so they could only afford a few of the colored glass panes. Besides this, the panes with the colored glass give the building a jeweled look. It stands in a port that has many boats, mostly connected with fishing in the docks. Inside Harpa, long stairways run up along in the inside of the windows, and standing at the top looking down, it looks like the staircase in a magic castle. We are riding around in a tuk-tuk with Thora, our guide. He's a cool guy, with long blonde hair, dark sunglasses, red skinny jeans, and a bright, curious character. He has long, beautiful fingernails, which he says he plays the classical guitar with. I post a picture of him on Facebook, and one of my friends says he looks like me. He tells us Icelanders are wasteful, because they don't have to pay much for their heating and hot water, so they leave the windows wide open in the winter and take long showers. The water is piped directly from the hot springs into people's homes, and their electricity comes from the powerful waterfalls. He drives us around, telling us about the history and the city, where we can get good food, what is the touristy stuff, what we should do while we are here, etc. We ask him how people deal with the 24 hours of darkness in the winter, and he says, We read a lot. In the summer, when it's 24 hours of light, John and I imagine they get a lot done. We also get the feeling that they don't like the impression that everyone is depressed in the winter because of the darkness. We meet a guy who moved here from the U.S., and he says it was hard to get used to the constant darkness in the winter at first, but now he accepts it and it's easier. Iceland was discovered when the explorer, Eric the Red, was tired of wandering and he threw a log made from some special wood overboard and said, where it lands, I will make my home. And guess where it landed? When they first saw Reykjavik, they saw the steam rising and thought it was smoke, so named it Reykjavik, which means smoke in Icelandic. At the beginning of the tour, I stepped out of the tuk-tuk into a pond, thinking it was a sidewalk, so completely soaked my foot in cold water. Even my socks were waterlogged, and I couldn't imagine spending the whole day like that, as it's about 16 degrees Celsius outside. I asked Thora if we would be going by any places where I could buy some running shoes, and he said we'd go past an outlet store, so I'm in luck. We say goodbye to Thora and go to a little cafe he said was his favorite, and order some lamb soup, which is an Icelander specialty. Then walk around the center looking at some great graffiti until we catch the bus and luckily find our way back to the hotel. We just get into bed when the fire alarm sounds, and we join everyone out in the hallway only to find it was a false alarm.
I decide to pack my new backpack with all the important things I would take with me in case of a real emergency before I can go to sleep. We have now been on buses for a couple of days, visiting geothermal areas, going from fields of hot springs where steam is rising up from the earth from many different places, volcanoes, we drove along the road where the tectonic plates between Eurasia and North America can be seen on land. We walk along a wall that rose from the earth during one of the volcano's eruptions. It looks like the wall from the TV show Game of Thrones, but without the ice. The show was filmed here in Iceland, so it is possible that is what it is. We see other incredible landscapes with the powerful waterfalls that are one of the sources of electricity here, and sprawling across the background are huge ice fields. We get to see the world-famous geyser. The word comes from Icelandic and means to gush. Great geyser erupts every four to eight minutes, and all the other geysers around the world are named after this one. It is the first one and is still going strong. It is amazing to be standing so close. There's a hole in the ground about the size of a child's blow-up pond or smaller, and it's almost still but steaming. Then it starts to simmer, but only slightly. Then it starts to suck down and back up again, but doesn't rise up any higher than the lip of the hole. Then suddenly it sucks down and blows with such a force. It jumps up to about 30 meters, which is 98 feet, in the air, sometimes again and again and sometimes only once for about two to three minutes. Sometimes it finishes, then blows again right away. It is so exciting, as you know it will do it, but you don't know exactly when or how it will go. We visit the power plant that supplies the energy to all of Iceland, and they speak about possibilities for the rest of the world regarding ways to make the world a greener place. We visit a church that was the first seat of government in Iceland and walk through the secret exit through a tunnel under the church. We are on our way to the airport. We stop at the famous Blue Lagoon, which is a hot springs in between Reykjavik and the airport. We have a flight in a few hours later in the afternoon, so decided we would make the trip to the lagoon on the way to the airport. The water is a milky blue color due to the minerals in the mud under the water, so many people soaking in its waters spread it on their face, hoping it will give them a healthy glow. They look like they are preparing for a ghostly war instead. There is a bar on the side of the lagoon and many people are standing, sitting and floating in the pale turquoise water. It is a very busy place and we hadn't included the time it might take to check our bags in a kind of a coat check, stand in lineups, put clothes in lockers, change into bathing suits, shower, etc., It took us so long to get in that we can only stay in the water briefly. The plane is eight hours late, so we could have easily made a day of it at the Blue Lagoon. Despite the crowds, Thora told us not to come here because of the number of people. 
He still remembers what it was like before Iceland became such a popular tourist destination. It was a pleasant place to be. We arrive late in Halifax, so don't get to go out for dinner or see the city. We have a room at the airport, so we will eat breakfast at the airport before boarding the plane for Newfoundland. Looking out the window, it looks and feels like Canada. It feels good. We are in my sister Bonnie's apartment in St. John's, Newfoundland. We are looking down George Street, and it is hopping. We arrived early earlier today, met with Bonnie for lunch, and walked around the area, investigating the shops and cafes in this area, which is a couple of blocks up from the port and the center of town. George Street is famous for its music scene. Every night there are many different live bands, acts, playing the strip of bars and clubs in the two-block area right below Bonnie's apartment. For those who don't know her, Bonnie has been working in different parts of the music business almost all her working career, based mostly in Toronto and currently here in Newfoundland. She's dabbled in all areas, from being an A&R to collecting royalties, etc. She is like a Robin Hood for artists, and they in turn respect her and her opinions. I have always thought of this side of Canada as quite exotic, as it's a place where folklore and fishermen live. It has a great music scene, so we are excited to have the chance to visit Bonnie in her new setting. Canary yellow, indigo blue, sea green and fiery red colored houses stand side by side on the side of large hills facing the port and the other side of those hills is the Atlantic Ocean. The air is fresh and has a salty edge of the ocean in it. The people are friendly and effortlessly cool. Music and art is respected, and a sense of humor seems necessary in this summer of 2015, where the the temperature has been chilly. We are happy that we have been getting used to a drop in temperature since Madrid. London was about 26 on average, Iceland was around 15, and Newfoundland is around 7. There is a constant wind and a humidity that comes with the sea, so it feels like England in the winter. The cold descends into your bones and you forget it's summer. I have to borrow an extra jacket and woolen hat and gloves from Bonnie to wear on top of my down jacket and sweater, and I'm still a little cold. There are many wonderful restaurants, and each one has something delicious and special, and we discover new treats every day and evening. The first night we go down into the crowds of George Street, it is surreal to see, to hear different music coming out of every place we pass, so it becomes difficult to choose where to go. Bonnie has to work while we are there, but manages to be a wonderful host and tour guide. One day she says we will go on a walk that is on the side of a cliff and insists that we can only go so far because there is a point on the path where it thins and is barely big enough for your feet with a sheer drop on one side to the rocks far below and only a small chain embedded into the mountain to hold on to on the other side. 
She says she's never been beyond the chain, so we'll have to turn around at that point and go the other way up Signal Hill. This walk is a long one and very beautiful, so we are stopping every minute or so to take pictures. Bonnie is walking purposefully ahead of us, so she doesn't notice that we are not right behind her. By the time she gets to the part where the path thins out, I imagine she's been thinking about it for at least 20 minutes, so she just does it. Bonnie walks across to the side where the path is normal again. It is the first time since she moved here that she has faced her fear and done it, so we all hoot. I cross slowly, holding the chain with two hands and do not look down while I do it. John doesn't really make a fuss at all, but we already know that he likes dangerous sports. We continue on the path which leads to the open Atlantic Ocean and Signal Hill. It is the highest, most easterly point in Canada, where, back in the past, soldiers could watch for incoming boats. Each step reveals a new and more splendid view and photo opportunity. Then, finally, we walk up to Signal Hill. After looking at the historical monuments on the, at the top, we take another path down the other side to a small village where there is supposed to be one of the best restaurants in town. After what seems like four hours of walking, we are very hungry and looking forward to lunch at Mallard. We arrive and are informed that it is closed for a, p- a private function. No! Bonnie says there is a supermarket not too far away. So we continue walking for what seems like another couple of hours to get to the supermarket where we buy way more than we need but get to take a taxi back to her apartment. Bonnie will be very fit living in St. John's. We are now in a boat traveling out to the Atlantic Ocean to see the humpback whales. We travel out of the strait that leads to the ocean, past the jail on the corner of the hillside mountain we saw from the other side yesterday, The waves are crashing up against the rocks, and it is hard to imagine anyone escaping from this side. We pass a beautiful lighthouse a little further on. For those who don't know yet, I have a thing for lighthouses. I've always wanted to live in one. Then, some caves, and we start to see the whales. There seem to be many of them, and and they are fairly close to the boat at times, almost flirting with us. It is so cool to think that we have seen them in two different parts of the world, in the warmth of Mexico last year in February, and now in the cool summer playground of Canada. The sun is shining, which makes the journey pleasant, but it's still a little chilly, so we are bundled up. There are so many whales that I stop filming and taking pictures and just enjoy seeing them. We wake up to sunshine and warm weather the day of our flight to Saskatchewan. We have had a great visit, good food, music, and company. We have also seen some amazing graffiti here too. And Bonnie says they pay the artists to do the work, so it's really beautiful. It tells a story and is part of the culture, and again says something about the people of Newfoundland's respect for art. We're so grateful that we got a chance to experience this cheerful, fresh, and welcoming part of Canada. 
We are back in Saskatchewan and have spent the remainder of our summer with family that we won't see for another year, and even though we should be used to it after all this time, there's always a pull between the places we live and wanting to see the people we love more often. In my last update, I spoke about John and being in the hospital with him. Two days after he got out, we got a call from his brother Lyle saying Dorothy, their mother, was in hospital. She died the next day. John had just gotten out of the hospital and wasn't allowed to travel, so the family decided to have a memorial service when we got back. We had a small, intimate ceremony, and we're happy we got a chance to honor and say goodbye to John's wonderful 92-year-old mother, and we were happy we got to see her when we came home this last winter. The light streaks across the sky like a fish in a fast-flowing river, and it's gone. Wow. Our necks are sore from looking up, but we don't want to miss seeing a good one. We are standing on a gravel road in the darkest part of the countryside. We can't see each other's faces, but we can hear the mosquitoes. They are all around us, trying to find a spot where we are vulnerable, trying to bite us. I move around like a little kid who needs the loo. I try not to breathe so they can't find me. It's the carbon dioxide they can smell or feel. I can feel them all around my head, through the hat that is tied over my ears. They fly in at my face all at once, and I breathe out and hit my face at the same time with my gloved hands. I'm getting hot with all these clothes on, but grateful for the protection. We drove for a half an hour to find a place that had no reflection from farmhouse lights or hangover glow from the town. There are sloughs along the road, so we knew they'd be here. We have seen quite a few shooting stars. It's been a good night for stargazing, but finally we can't take it. In the depth of the countryside, the mosquitoes are hungry. They don't really get a lot of visitors. We are looking out the window of Taipei 101 in the city of Taipei. We came up 47 floors in 21 seconds. It's apparently in the Guinness World Book of Records. The city stretches out as far as we can see on at least two sides of the building. The mountains are beyond the city. We haven't really had the time to explore it, but we'll be back. We return to Wuhan tomorrow for our fifth year in China. The adventure continues. Mm-hmm.